You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit stonegate-church.com. Okay, First Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to be, so go ahead and flip there. If you have stumbled in on us in the midst of this, we're in a series called Gospel Plus Mission where we're trying to work through and lift up and kind of polish off and set before you this biblical theme of a missionary God creating a missionary people. That when when God saves a person, he sends a person. So that we are a sent people, John 17 says. And so this is where a couple of centuries ago, Charles Spurgeon would look at his people and say, Christians, you're either a missionary or an imposter. This is the idea, that, that when God saves, he sends. So that we're a sent people, um, meant to declare that the gospel, that this message of God with our lips and to demonstrate it with our lives. This, this sort of an idea is where we are. Okay, so First Peter is going to take us kind of our next step today. So we're actually going to start in chapter 1, the first verse, just to set the context. So First Peter 1, 1, if you'll flip back there, here's what it says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So just to start it off, he, he announces who, who it is that's writing. This is Peter. If, if you've read your New Testament, then you know this is like the loudmouth Peter. The, if you know one of those people that consistently put their foot in their mouth, that's this Peter, right? This is Peter. He's the loud mouth, always saying things he shouldn't really say that, that guy. Okay, so if you kind of read through in your New Testament, you also know that this is the guy that was a disciple of Jesus, a fisherman, and that at the last night of Christ, he, he denied Jesus. Okay, now if you keep reading though, in the Acts, you see that the first half of the book of Acts, the primary human character in the first half of the book of Acts is Peter. That this was a man who, who did deny Jesus, but on the other side of, of the resurrection, this was a person, and this is just a great gospel display here. This is a person that God redeemed from that and used to really build his church. If you've read in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit falls, he cuts the people's heart, and, and Peter is preaching, and 3,000 people get saved. This is that Peter that, that's writing this letter. So you've got Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and here's who he's writing to to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And then he gives kind of this geography of where these people are. And so here's what we know about the, the audience, these people. It's, it, they're Christians. It's a church. It's the scattered church throughout this area of what is now kind of Central, Tur- or, uh, Central Asia, kind of that Turkey area, right? And so he's writing to these people, and they're scattered. They've been scattered because of persecution primarily. And they're people who are ostracized. They're marginalized. They're a minority in their culture, right? Suffering is one of the the dominant themes in the book. If you look down at verse 5, you'll see that he's writing to encourage them in in the midst of their suffering. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he tells them, arm yourself with this knowledge that Jesus suffered. So if you're following Jesus, you can probably expect to suffer. And so in the midst of this marginalized, suffering group of people, he writes this letter to encourage them to stay faithful. He encourages them to stay centered on the mission. Okay, so this this is the context we're working in. Okay, now look at chapter 2, verse 9. Here's here's what he, the first thing he's going to do here in in verse 9, is he's going to remind them of who they are. And this is what he says. But you are a chosen race. Talking to these scattered, persecuted Christians. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Just think about this. This is the first thing he's trying to get their mind reoriented around are these beautiful gospel realities. This is who God has made you. This is who you now are because of the gospel. 
Like this is what Christ has done to you. This is what he's done for you. He has brought you in. He has adopted you. He has fundamentally changed the inside of you. You have new appetites, new taste buds. Everything about you is now different. You are fundamentally changed. You are a chosen people. Massive gospel reality right there. Chosen people. That God has set his affection on you. Now listen to this. Not because you deserved it. Not because you're better than your neighbor. Not because you're a little more worth it. It's not that. He set his affection on you solely based on his grace. That he has chosen you. It says that he has, he has made you a royal priesthood. That you need no stand between. That you have all the access to God that you could ever dream. That he's made you a holy people. That he has set you apart. That's the idea there. That he has made you his own possession. He has adopted you into the family. Massive gospel reality right here. And all the resources, all the privileges, all the rights of the king are now yours. So here's the first thing he's doing. He's reacclimating their mind to knowing who they are and what they have in the gospel. And everything he's about to say, everything we're going to walk through today is rooted in that. This is not Paul coming along and saying, do these things, be a good moral person. It is Paul saying, this is who you are. This is your identity. This is who God has made you. Now live like it. Now in light of this, live like that. He said, this, this is where this is going to be rooted in today. So I don't want you to hear this and say, well, he's asking us just to do something. I'm asking you to live like what you are. This is what Peter's doing here. He's reminding the scattered, persecuted church, this is what you have. This is what the gospel has done to you. Okay, now watch what happens here. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In light of that, now... This is what happens, that you may proclaim the excellencies, the beauty, the worth of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So this is this biblical theme that we're trying to show light on, shed light on here, that God saves, he does something to us, and then he sends us. This is the idea that God is a missionary God and he is a sending God. Kind of this idea of Genesis chapter 12, when God blesses a person or a people, it is so they will turn around and be a blessing. This is how, this is just the economy of how God works here. When God does something, it is a, it's a, in an effort to then send out. Okay, this is the idea we're trying to lift up. And here's the first thing he's showing us about a sent people. That a sent people have the gospel on their lips. They are speaking the gospel. So, so I, maybe I want to say it this way this morning. I want you to see the role that your lips play in the mission of God. That our lips are instruments for gospel declaration. This is what your lips are. If you've ever wondered, why is it that God gave you a mouth? This is the reason. God has given you a mouth. He has given you lips. He's given you the ability to speak as an instrument to speak of the gospel. This is the idea here. Your, Your lips become massive in the movement of the mission of God. Okay, and this is what we spent last week on. We talked about a missionary's lips. And we, we worked through 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where we talked about in verses 3 and 4, that, that people are perishing. Apart from Jesus, our condition is that we're perishing. We are blinded in our unbelief. This is the work of Satan in a person's life. Blinds them to seeing where they can't see the beauty and the reality of who God is and how great the gospel is. So we're perishing. And then this is the work of God. Verse 6 in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He shines light into a person's heart. 
He removes the scales from their eyes so they can see him. For the first time, they can actually see that Christ is worth everything, that he is supremely valuable, that he is a priceless possession. This is the work of God to do that for you. This is that idea of in Ephesians chapter 2 where we are spiritually dead, but God breathes life into us where our hearts begin beating again. Okay, this, this is the work of God. Now smashed in between these two realities. Our condition, we're, we're, we're perishing, blinded in our unbelief. God over here working, shining in the hearts of a person to save them. What stands in the middle of those two, the means that God uses to save, the means that God uses to shine his light into people's hearts, the means is the people of God declaring the gospel of God. That's verse 5. That if we want people saved by God, if, if you've got family and friends, sons and daughters, if we want our neighbors, if we want the nations saved, it requires gospel declaration. People are not saved apart from the gospel traveling from the lips of people to other, to other people. Okay, this is what we looked at last week, that your lips are an instrument for gospel declaration. But, but Peter doesn't leave it there. Okay, Peter doesn't leave with, just speak the gospel. He doesn't leave it with, okay, so now here's your goal or here's your job just to proclaim how beautiful and glorious and excellent Christ is. That's not the end of the story. So let's keep reading here in verse 10. This is going to take us where we're going today. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, he's rooting it in this gospel reality. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. So God has adopted you. He has brought you into the family. Okay, another gospel reality. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. Okay, so he's rooting us in the gospel reality. Now, verse 11, he's going to tell us what to do in light of that. So in light of this, beloved, I urge you as, as exiles or aliens to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So he's just going to state this in negative terms. He's saying this, don't do that. Don't run over. Don't, don't run after these passions of the flesh that are going to disappoint you. Don't, don't go in that way. And then he's going to state it in a positive way. So don't do that, verse 11, and now do this, verse 12. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of salvation. So here's what he's saying, that your lips are massively important. Your lips are the instruments for gospel declaration, but it's not just about your lips. The mission of God needs more than your lips and my lips proclaiming the gospel. Okay, now, now here's what Paul's showing us in 11 and 12, that your life, your life, is an instrument of gospel demonstration. So, so your lips declare the gospel, but your life is meant to be a visible demonstration of what the gospel does to a person. Now think about what this does to the normal rhythms and routine of your life, the grit and grime of your life. I mean, like you're going to wake up tomorrow, you're going to probably go to work, you're going to, you've got a routine that you're in tomorrow. Here's what the, this reality does to the monotonous routine that most of us live in, right? I mean, life is, is full of monotonous moments for us. But this reality that, that these monotonous moments are gospel displays, they resurrect it. They bring significance and meaning to the rhythms and routines of your life. So, so here's what we're saying. The way you live really, really matters. 
The, the way your marriage is functioning really matters. Men, the way you love and lay down your life for your wife, it really matters. Ladies, the way you joyfully follow your, your husband, that matters. The way you work really matters. The, the, what you're pursuing in life really matters. What you're running after in life really matters. What you're looking to for life and joy and satisfaction, what it is that you think will fix you, all of that really matters. God has given you the gift of your life as a tangible demonstration that what you are speaking really makes a difference. Are you seeing this? That, that your lives are meant to demonstrate the gospel. Okay, now this is what, this is what Peter's saying. He's saying that they'll see your good deeds. They'll see the demonstration of the gospel in your life and they will turn to God in response to that. The, this echoes kind of the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount pretty familiar words in Matthew chapter 5 where he's going to say gospel identity you're the light of the world you're a missionary and and people don't put a light under a basket they put it where everybody can see it and it gives light to everyone in the house and here's here's the end result of all this people will see those good deeds that you are living as light you're living as a sent people as a gospel demonstration and they'll glorify God same sort of words being echoed here from Peter he's saying your life really, really matters. How you live tomorrow really matters. How you live on a Friday night really matters. What happens behind closed doors in your home really matters. Your life matters to the mission of God. It's the visible demonstration that the gospel makes a difference. Okay, so let me try to intersect how life and lips, how these two things, how these two things go together, how they work and, and how they kind of intersect. And let me do it in two statements. Here's the first one. How, how life and lips intersect. Gospel demonstration validates gospel declaration. Okay, here's, here's what I'm trying to say by that. Your life, how you live, is what validates what your lips are saying. You see this? Gospel demonstration is what validates what you're saying, your gospel explanation, your gospel declaration. So your life becomes massively important in this. It is what validates what you're trying to speak. Okay, so I'm going to say that, that phrase, that same statement in three different ways, just in the hopes that this will kind of start to settle in. So same, I'm saying the same thing. Let me give it in three different ways here. Okay, so here's the idea. Gospel demonstration, how you live, validates gospel declaration, what you're saying. Okay, let me say this in a different way. Way number one. Your life builds the platform from which you're going to declare the gospel. Your life builds a platform that you're going to stand on. And when you speak the gospel, your life is the platform from which you speak it on. Okay, so, so think about, think about this. Maybe you can think about your life as building a stage for you. Now, if you're a Christian in here, here's just the reality for it, especially if you've been a Christian for a good while. You really don't know how weird you are. I'm telling you, you don't know how weird you are. If you listen to yourself talk, and if you listen to what you are trying to tell other people, and you had no sort of an understanding of what all this is about, you would think you're crazy. Okay, so just think about what you're trying to get people to believe, you, what you're declaring to people. You're saying to people, Jesus is enough. 
that Jesus is really enough. Jesus plus nothing equals everything you need. That Jesus is the bread of life. You, you take that and you'll n- never be hungry. He, he's, he's the, the ultimate, like this water, this water of living that, that produces life. And if you drink here, you'll never, th- he, he quenches the deepest desires of your soul. Okay, now, now think about this. Your life is either building a beautiful stage to speak that from, or it's making a mockery of that. I, it's really easy to speak and our lives to come behind that and rather than validating that, to actually make a mockery of what we're saying. When people see us say that God is the, like He is the treasure. He is what you need. And then they watch us running after other things frantically as if they're going to give us life and joy and satisfaction, right? So you see how this works? Your life builds this platform, this stage that validates what you're saying. Let me say it another way. Way number two. The most persuasive argument for the new life that Christ offers is new life. Okay, so think about this. Here's what we're saying. The most persuasive thing you possess, the most persuasive argument you have that this thing is for real, the most persuasive thing that God has given you is a transformed life. So, so, okay, now here's the flip side of what I'm saying. Arguments for the existence of God. You can memorize like nine of them having in your back pocket, right? I mean, four reasons why the Bible is God's word, right? 19 reasons or this little essay that you wrote on why you should become a Christian, right? All of that is great. Have that. But I'm saying this, that is not your most persuasive argument. God has given you the gift of your life to be the most persuasive argument you have, the most persuasive and convincing proof you have that what you're saying is real, that God really makes a difference. The gospel really does change things. A guy named Graham Tomlin, he's he's an English uh, theologian. He was commenting and and kind of making some observations of a guy named Blaise Pascal, some of his works and writings. Blaise Pascal was a French um, kind of philosopher, theologian, brilliant dude, people still reading today, several centuries later. And, and here's what Graham Tomlin was, was saying as he was reading and thinking about some of the things that Blaze had read and, and wrote. Okay, so, so here he goes. He says this, it'll be on the screen for you. Talking about this idea of, of your most convincing argument. He says this, if you don't make people want to believe the gospel is true, it doesn't matter what sort of arguments you lay before them. Now think about that. If you don't make people want to believe the gospel is true, it doesn't matter what sort of arguments that you lay before them. He goes on. For Pascal, presenting someone with a list of proofs for Christianity or evidence for faith is probably a waste of time. If someone doesn't want to believe, no amount of proof or proof text can ever convince them. If they don't want to believe, They're not going to. It doesn't matter if you pull out the nine reasons why God exists, right? Now he goes on to say this. The crucial, the vital, the crucial factor in persuading someone to believe then is not to present evidence, not to present these proofs, but first to awaken a desire for God in them. In other words, 
when commending Christianity to people, make it attractive, make, listen to this statement, make good men wish it were true, then show them that it is true. Isn't that that a beautiful thought? Such arguments as there are for Christianity can convince those who hope it's true, but will never convince those who don't. So here's what he's saying, that you can throw out whatever sort of arguments you want to throw out for why you believe, but that's not going to be the convincing thing for somebody. Here is what you have to do first. You have to awaken a desire for God in them. You have to make them want to believe it's true. And when you do that, then you can lay out your goods down here. But your life is the way you awaken somebody to the things of God. It is the way you make people want to believe it's true. Are you you seeing what we're saying here? That gospel demonstration, your life is what validates your, your, your declaration, your lips. Okay, let me say this in one more way. Number three. The best way... To make a difference in the world is by being different. The best way to make a difference in the world is by being different. So, so here's one of the implications of that. We don't need another group of people in Midlothian that are trendy, hip, cool, kind of have it together, have nice stuff. That, that's not what our city, it's not what our neighborhoods, it's not what your family needs. What our city needs are a group of people who live distinctly different in the rhythms and routines of their life. This is God's chosen means to demonstrate the gospel. It's what brings validity to what we're saying. Okay, so Jonathan Edwards, one time he was talking about just kind of this idea that you can know a lot about God without ever knowing God. You you know what I'm talking about? That that you can know a lot of facts about God. You can know a lot of truth about God. You can know a lot of God's attributes, but you can know all of that and really not know God. Like, know, know God. Okay, so let me kind of lay this out for you, how he says this, and I want to make it draw one implication from it. He says, there's a big difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. So he's saying this, that it's one thing to know in your mind intellectually that God is is gracious, he's holy, he's loving, he's all those things. It's another thing to know like in this personal sense, I've got it in my heart, I've experienced way. There's a difference in those two. He goes on. There is a difference in having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. Like if you have never tasted honey and somebody came to you and said, honey is awesome. It is the sweetest thing you've ever tasted. You're going to intellectually know that, but you're not going to be brought to your knees until you taste it, right? Okay, this, this is the idea. And he goes on to say, there's a difference in hearing that someone is beautiful and seeing that someone is beautiful. The former can be had from hearsay and the other is only had when they look upon that beauty. Okay, so, so here's the implication. If, if we want people to not just know God intellectually, see, this is what your lips are for. Lips are, are there to help you declare, this is who God is. This is what God is. See, this is what your lips are there for. To, to on an intellectual level say, this is God. But here's what your life does. Your life is the tangible demonstration. So now they don't just know that honey is sweet, 
but they see and they taste the sweetness of honey. Your life is how people taste Jesus. Your life is how people get a sense of not just that Jesus is holy and good and right, but how they get a sense of it personally. Your life is that. Your life is the difference between those two things. Do you see what we're saying here? Your life is what validates your lips. Gospel demonstration validates gospel declaration. Okay, so we see in this weave through here. Now watch how this plays out in, in 1 Peter. Remember, he's writing to a, a scattered, persecuted, suffering church. He's trying to encourage them. You stay faithful. You stay centered on the mission, right? This is what he's going for here. And look at verse 12. Okay, chapter 2, verse 12. Let me just remind you of this one. He, and we looked at this a minute ago. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you, right? It's not honorable when they do good to you, but it's honorable even when they speak evil against you, even when they slander you, even when they sin against you, even when they deeply hurt you. Keep your conduct honorable among them. Why? He goes on to say that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See what he's saying? That you're proclaiming it with your mouth, but, but then you're, dis, you're demonstrating it with your lives. Even when they defile you, sin against you, slander you, you, you keep your conduct honorable. This is your demonstration before them. This is what validates what you're trying to speak to them. Okay, look down at verse 13. The context for the, verse 13 is submission to authority. How we deal with authority in our life. And this is what Peter is telling these, these people. Scattered, persecuted, suffering church. He says this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, why do you submit? Why, why do you live joyfully underneath the authority that God has placed over your life? Even in this case, when they're persecuting Christians, but why, why do you live this way? Here's what he says, verse 15. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Here's what, what he's saying. You live this way because this is your biggest proof that what you're speaking is true. You, you live in this radical way, reoriented around the gospel. And you show that the gospel fundamentally changes people, radically realters people by demonstrating it in your own life. Look at verse 18. This would be the situation, the context, if we were to bring it into modern day situations of an employee and an employer, a boss and a worker. And here's what he's going to say. Servants, workers, employees, workers, be subject to your masters, to your boss with all respect. And then watch what he says here. Not only to, to the good and gentle, not only those who treat you rightly, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God would endure sorrow while suffering, suffering unjustly. You see what he's saying? He's saying, I want you to live in such a way, to demonstrate the gospel in such a way that even when they treat you unjustly, when they don't reward you for your work, when they abuse you in the workplace, take advantage of you in the workplace, I want you to work with such, with such an ethic, with such a fervency that they would be puzzled by it. That they would be in awe about it. Okay, so, so track with me here. This is what, this is what Peter's saying. That not only does the gospel val, or gospel demonstration, your, your life validate your lips, your gospel declaration, 
Okay, but, but there's a next piece of this. Your gospel demonstration, your life is meant to demand a gospel explanation. Okay, so, so track with me. I want you to see this. This is really important that you get this. Here's what he's saying. That you're to be living in such a way that the only explanation for how you're living is the gospel. Okay, now think about, think about just the outworkings of this, uh, we'll, we'll use the, uh, the worker kind of in this unjust environment. You're, you're the worker, okay? You're, you're getting abused, you're getting taken advantage of, you're not being adequately paid, you're not being adequately anything. I mean, you're just getting abused in this place. But you're working as to the Lord and not to that man, not to that boss, not to that woman. See, when you start to do that, it, it raises some puzzling questions. Picture yourself as the employer, as the boss. And you know you're taking advantage of this person. I mean, you know you're not treating them fairly. But, but they're working as if not to you, but somebody different. I mean, they're, they're your hardest worker and you're abusing them the most. I mean, doesn't that raise some puzzling questions if you're the employer? I mean, why is it that they're living like that? Why is it that they're acting like that? What is wrong with them, right? Okay, let, go to uh, chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, 1 and 2. The context in, in chapter 3, 1 and 2 is you've got a hard-hearted husband who is not living in the ways of God. And look what it tells the woman there. Here's how you're to win him over, by, the, by your conduct. Okay, so, so let's just say you're, you're the husband. You know you're treating your, life, your wife terribly. I mean, you know that you're a jerk to her, right? But all of a sudden, your, your wife is serving you. I mean, your wife is laying down her life in just radical acts of service and sacrifice to you. She speaks well of you to outsiders, to people who are around you, even though she could bash you justly, right? And think about the puzzling thing that this brings up, the puzzling question this brings up for a husband. Why is she doing that? What is wrong? Is she, is she smoking? I mean, what, what's the deal here, right? <laughs> do, do you see what this raises in people? That when you start to live in such a way that demands a gospel explanation, people start to ask, what, what is the reason for that? Well, what is wrong with you? What is it that you're smoking, right? This is what people start to ask. Okay, now, now flip over to chapter 3, verse 14. This is what Peter is anticipating with the lives of these Christians. Persecuted, suffering, marginalized minority, he anticipates something from their lives. Now, now watch this in, in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, so you're suffering and it's not your fault. It's just because of the injustice of things around you, of people around you. You will be, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Verse 15. But in your heart set apart, or in your heart's honor, or set apart Christ the Lord as holy. And then look what he says. Always be prepared to make a defense. Okay, that's, that's lips, that's declaration. To anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. And do this with gentleness and respect. Do you see what Peter is anticipating from the lives of these people? He's anticipating that their lives bring up puzzling questions. He's anticipating that their life raises questions like, what are you doing? What is wrong with you? Why, husband to the wife, why do you keep serving me although I'm a jerk to you? Boss to employee, 
Why do you keep working hard when I take advantage of you? See, he, here's what he's saying here. That your life is meant to, meant to bring up and demand an explanation for why it is that you live the way you do. If you want to know why the early church spread with such fervency across, I mean, literally across the known world, why that happened, here's why. Because they weren't just preaching it, but they were living it. And if you want to know one of the primary reasons that the church in America is struggling, it's because we're preaching, but we're not living. Lives are not connected to lips. This is one of the primary reasons why the church has moved out of a central place in culture. Because the culture laughs at it. The credibility of the gospel hangs on the credibility of the church. And when the church is not credible, the gospel in the eyes of people around it is no longer credible. You see what's happening here. So, so Peter is saying, this is the role of your life. Your life is meant to stir up, to, to, to demand these puzzling questions of people. It's meant to demand an explanation. So you've got in Acts 5, Peter and John get arrested and beaten. They leave the jailhouse and it says that they're rejoicing having considered that God had counted them worthy to suffer. I would say that demands a gospel explanation. I mean, do you know of many people that get the mess beat out of them and look to God and say, God, I thank you. I love that, right? Can we do that again? That demands a gospel explanation. How about Paul in Philippians chapter 3 where he says, man, all these earthly accolades, they're like rubbish to me that I could get Christ. You see that? That demands a gospel explanation. Why does money not mean everything to you? Why do these possessions not mean everything to you? Why are you not a workaholic? Right? I mean, it demands an explanation. Um, how about Paul in Philippians 4, where he says, I've learned the secret of being content when I have everything and when I have nothing. See, contentment demands a gospel explanation. Find that guy around here, right? That demands an explanation. Here's what Peter's saying. Your life is meant to demand an explanation from your lips as to why you live the way you do. Okay, now with this said, I just want to ask three questions and we'll kind of finish with these three questions. Three questions that you can just maybe kind of lay down over your life as you kind of process through this and try to apply these things. Three questions. First one. Just real simple. Does your life demand a gospel explanation? The way you're living, does it demand it? Okay, now, now I, I want you to see what Peter is saying to these people, though. He's not saying just be a good guy. See, here's what good guys do. A good guy, if I walked up to you today and gave you $1,000, a good guy walks out, gets on the phone, and tells like the, the first 10 people they see, you wouldn't believe this guy. I mean, I, I, I barely know him, but he's, he, this guy's a good guy, right? Good, good people will, will take a situation like that and they're going to do what good people do, right? But here's what he's saying. Peter is moving us way beyond what a good person would do and he's moving us toward what a gospel person would do. Peter is saying, what about the guy that comes up and slanders you, sins against you? How do you speak about that person? How do you respond to that person? See, see, this is the, the, the lady that's getting taken advantage of in the marriage. Just an unbelieving, hard-hearted guy. Th this is her 
sacrificially serving him when he doesn't deserve it. This is the employee that's getting taken advantage of that works really hard knowing that ultimately they're working for God, not this person. You see what Peter's saying here? That it's moving us beyond what good people do and it's moving us to what gospel people do. And does your life show, does it display what the gospel produces in us? And the way you serve people, the, the way you the way you love your wife, the way you love your husband, the way your marriage is functioning, the way you work, in all of these areas, does it demand, are, are you doing not just what good people do, but are you doing what the gospel does? This is the question. And that, like, it's so encouraging. Every morning I get here, and I, well, every Sunday morning I get here, and I look, I come in and I see guys practicing and kind of setting all this stuff up up here. This, here's what it takes to do this up here. There's about seven or eight guys, like all these guys you see that lead us up here that do all the sound stuff, stay here for both hours, do all that. They meet at a storage shed at about six, six fifteen. They load up a couple thousand pounds worth of equipment. They haul it over here. They set it up. They then do a sound check, practice, and then they serve you by leading us in worship. Then when we finish, they're going to stay and they're going to tear all this junk down. They're going to put it back in a truck, haul it back over to the storage little shed, and they're going to get up next Sunday and do it all over again. Now listen, we're not paying them to do that. I look at this every morning and think, that is the gospel at work in a group of people. That demands an explanation. This is the one morning they could sleep in and they're at a storage shed at 6 Loading sound equipment. What is wrong with those people, right? Okay, now now think about the rest of this place. We have a group of guys that get here at 6.30. A group of men, they meet here. They, they get a trailer here that's got all of this stuff that you see. So all of our preschool stuff, all of our chill, everything that you see out on a Sunday morning comes out of a trailer that a group of guys get here at 6.30 and from and kind of that 6.30 to 8.30 time, they set up everything you see on the one morning they could probably sleep in. That demands gospel explanation. And so here's what I'm asking you. Are there, does, does your life, or just the components, the grit and grime of your life, the rhythms and routines, the normal flow of your life, are you going beyond what good people do toward what gospel people do? Does it demand a gospel explanation? Do people look at the way you're living and think this? I have no idea why they live like that. No idea. This is what the gospel produces in us. This is what Peter is getting at here. And just as an aside, this is what, this is how lives and lips interact. Your life demands this, this question, this, why are you doing that? And then your lips get to declare, the gospel's why I'm doing this, right? It's not because I'm a good person. It's not because my DNA was pretty good. It's not because my parents raised me well. It is because the gospel has changed you. That's why. If you're a forgiving person, that's not a DNA issue. That is because you have seen in the gospel that God, through Christ, although you have grossly offended him, although you have sinned against him, that God in Christ has forgiven you. That's why we're forgiving people. If you're a generous person, it's not in your DNA to be generous. It's in your DNA to be really greedy. If you're generous, here's why we're generous. Because we have seen that, that God sent Jesus, who was rich, 
Second Corinthians 8 tell us, but became poor. He came to earth and in his poverty, he made us rich. So that now when we look at Christ, we see that we have everything we need so we don't have to hoard our money as if it's going to be our security, that Christ is. And so now we can give it in radical ways. See, this is what the gospel does to us. And this is what we get to explain the gospel doing in us. So does your life demand a gospel explanation? Second thing. Is your life radically reoriented around people? Okay, I want to cut this in, in two different ways. And this is, this is important that you see how these things connect. There are a few things, that, well, there's nothing that demonstrates the gospel as well as and as persuasively as a changed life, a gospel-saturated life. And there is no better place to make a gospel-saturated life than in gospel-saturated community. So here's what we're saying. Part of you living like this, the life of a missionary, is lived with the people of God, with people who know Jesus, where you have invited them into your life to speak into it, where they know you and you've invited them to speak truth into you, and where they, where you know them and they've invited you to speak into their life. See, this is what community is. God has called us to live amongst a group of people with in a group of people who know us and we know them. Okay, now this is why it's so important for the mission. John 13, um, verse 35, Jesus is going to say this. Okay, so people are going to look at you. They're going to know you're my disciples by what? By, by how well you study the Bible? You getting your nine proofs in your back pocket? No. I mean, those things are good, but here's what he says. This, this is how people will know that you're my disciples. By how you love one another. That's how. So you see how this works itself out? You getting in community with people, you getting in where you're living life with a group of people, this is how you display the gospel. This is how you show that Christ is sufficient, that he has everything. The, the community, God's, God's people around you. I love how Leslie Newbigin says it. He says, the community of God, the church, is the hermeneutic of the gospel. Here's what that means. That when people watch how people inside the church react to one another, respond to one another, that is how they understand and know what God is like. So when you walk together with people, this is how people know what God's like. So here's what this means for you practically. Let me just put some meat on this. Living in community, loving one another, radically reorienting your life around Christians, around people who know Jesus. That doesn't just mean people who look like you, people who get along with you, people who never sin against you, people who they, they think like you, they, they generally live like you, they're interested in the same things that you're interested in. It doesn't mean that. Living life oriented around the people of God, around Christians means that you are bringing people in who do not look like you, think like you, who actually sin against you, who wrong you insult you, speak evil against you, all of those things. And how we demonstrate the gospel as a church to them in that is how we respond to one another when that happens. You see how this works? So, so think about that person at Stonegate that you don't like. I mean, you really, if, if you're just, to be honest, you would wish they really weren't here. Think about that person. And, and, and here's the thing. If that person isn't here yet, they soon will be, right? Okay, now here's the other part of that. You're probably going to be that person for somebody as well. 
Now, whoever those people are for you, here's, here's what we're saying. Your gospel demonstration is linked to how you respond to, how you love, how you serve, how you speak to those people. That specific person that you don't like. See, it doesn't take the gospel to love and, and, and respond well to people who respond well to you, does it? It takes a transformed heart to respond well to those who sinned against you. It takes a gospel heart to do that. See, that demands an explanation. When you start to forgive people who have, I mean, who have flagrantly sinned against you, that demands an explanation for that. What is wrong with that person? How do you do that? See, this is what we're getting at here. This is how people know that you're a disciple. Okay, now here's the second part of this. It cuts the other way. It also means that we're not just knowing Christian people, bringing Christian people into our life, but we are opening our life up to people who do not know Jesus. Okay, so we've asked this and kind of talked through this the last couple of weeks, but we we just asked the question, do you really know people who don't know Jesus? Do you really know people like that? That don't think, talk, anything like you. They They don't have a baseline of beliefs like you do. And it's not just do you like know their names, but are you bringing them into your life? See, this is the idea of hospitality in the scriptures is not you getting to know Christians, you having Christians into your home. That's not the predominant usage of hospitality. Hospitality means that you are opening your life, your home, your resources, your family, everything to people who do not know Jesus. Now, if that's how we were to to kind of look at your life and hospitality, would we see that you're a hospitable person? Are you opening up your lives to get to know people who don't know Jesus? Now, here's one of the ways I like to illustrate this is with the Lego. It takes us back to like, we're five years old, right? So, so Legos kind of help us see what, how this works itself out. In every one of our lives, you've got relational slots for six to eight people. So if you look over the last four months of your life and you were to answer this question, who is it that you went out and ate with, that you did something with? If you went out, this is who you went out with, those people, that you call on the phone consistently. You've got six to eight of those sort of people in your life. Now here's the problem with Christians. The longer you become a Christian, the more likely it is that all of those six or eight are going to be filled with Christian people. That every one of those relational slots for you are filled with people who think like you, act like you, believe what you believe, vote like you vote. They're just like you. And here's what we're saying. That cannot be that way. The gospel moves us not just toward the Christian community, but to people who do not know Jesus, where we're intentionally keeping slots of our life, relational slots open for people who do not know Jesus. Okay? Now, I, I want to just take a second here and, and, and kind of w- work through how this relates to mission, how this relates you loving the people of God and people outside of Jesus, how this relates to mission. Okay, let me, let me throw this first one up here for you. This is how most churches operate. Most churches operate like this. They, they get a huddle and they don't look outward, right? So you get a group of people and we are all about us. We are our group of people. We are All relational slots are filled with Christians. We're satisfied, we're content with our nine people and the world can go to hell. Okay, this this is where most people are. Now, here's here's the truth about your own life. Sometimes this is where we are. Not just those people, us. 
Okay, now, now here's the first movement that I think people have in this. Is naturally, I think, okay, so the response to that is, so, so we'll, we'll start moving toward people. So, so here's, here's how this works out. We go to our job, we start talking to this person. We, we try to get the gospel on our lips there. We're trying to, we're trying to do this thing. We're even trying to demonstrate this to them. Okay, the, another person, they go to their, wherever they work out, they're doing it there. This guy's coaching a football team, he's doing it there. We're all lone rangers doing our own thing, all kind of on, all kind of on our own here. Okay. Now this is what we're saying. This is okay. This is the first step, but here's what we're saying. Community is one of your greatest assets for the mission. Community is. So you don't have to be a lone ranger on this thing. You don't have to do this all by yourself. Like what if this becomes our paradigm here? Rather than saying all of us are kind of doing our own thing, that we widen our circle out to where now you get to invite your neighbor into this group. And so now our group of friends knows our neighbor. See, I don't want my neighbor just to know me. I want him to know our entire home group. I want him to know the names, the kids, everything about the people that I know. So I want to get our lives intersected because here's what I want him to see. I want my neighbor to see the gospel displayed in a group of people. I want him to see that the gospel really changes how we respond to one another, how we love one another. I want him to see that when I'm sinned against, this is what the gospel propels me to do back to this. See see how this works? It doesn't take a transformed life to go dump a track on a person's door. But here's what takes a transformed life. To invite a person into your life, into your group of people, to bring their group into your group and allow them to watch the gospel displayed, to watch it demonstrated in your group of people. You see this? This is one of the most convincing proofs that you have that the gospel is real. Not just your transformed life, but the transformed life of the people of God that you are walking with where you invite them in and they get to see this is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to love Jesus. This is what the gospel does in us. Last one and then we're done. Question three. Is your life radically reoriented around the mission of God? I mean, is this central to you? I mean, is this is this the thing for you? Is this what you're about in your life? Are you about the mission of God, getting the gospel on your lips and demonstrating it with your life, living in such a way that demands a gospel explanation, and when the puzzling questions come, we speak the gospel as the explanation for those things? Are you living with the with the, the mission of God central for you? I'll never forget, uh, I had a guy named Darren Ely that he spent, we, we kind of intersected for about a year, and he met with me once about once every two or three weeks just to invest some things into me. It was a really profitable time for me. He's one of those guys that just make you a little bit uncomfortable. And here's why. He kind of had that crazy eye. You know, people with that crazy eye, like you just think, man, they're a little bit crazy. Like I'm here, but they're like here. And that difference makes me a little bit uncomfortable around them. You know, this, this is that guy. I mean, he lived this stuff. I mean, he was there, centered on the mission of God. I'll never forget one time, we're, we're sitting across a uh, cafeteria table. And he looks at me and he says, Rodney, do you want to die sucking apple sauce out of a straw in a nursing home? Or do you want to die on the front lines of the mission of God? 
And I, here, here's my hope for us, for you, for me, for this group of people, is that we would die on the mission of God. That we would be so centered, so saturated with the gospel, that it would lead us to mission. That we would have the gospel on our lips, the gospel displayed in our life every moment, every day, every month of every year. May it be. Let's pray. Your life is vital to the mission. It's what validates it. Your life validates your lips. Your life is meant to demand an explanation that your lips can give. And your, your life really, really matters. You living in community with people. They know you, you know, well, you're walking and living with people. That matters. And so maybe one of the responses that we should have today is is for the Holy Spirit to work repentance in us in areas that, that we're living as good, normal people, right? But just not gospel people. Where we have shut the gospel off in our life to where it's not working itself out in the ways that it should. So when somebody sins against us, our response is, well, we'll sin back. Rather than, we will lay our life down and serve them. I mean, just think about areas of your life like that. I mean, there's a thousand of them. Where we're just not demonstrating what the gospel produces in a person. And so, so maybe repentance needs to, to happen this morning. Maybe specific areas come to mind there. And you can use this as an altar as we sing this last song. You can come up if you want. If you just want specific time where you can just say, God, help me here. I need, I need help here. And I want to remind you of the gospel as we kind of finish this, that I, I know for me, when I look over my last week, month, year, I see so many failures when it comes to this, you know. And for us to know that the gospel covers not only our past failures, but our present failures and our future failures. And that it forms us into a people who fail less in the future. And that it fuels us for this life of mission, right? I want to remind you of that. The gospel is sufficient. So God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. God, I pray that we would be a great, tangible demonstration of this gospel that's so precious to us. God, will you help our lives to validate our lips? God, will you help us build good stages to declare your gospel? God, will you help us to live different so that we can make a difference? God, will you help our lives be convincing arguments that the gospel is real, that you change things? Jesus, we need your help. We need your power. We need your grace for that. It's in your good name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with us? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.